0: We open the Holy Scriptures to Psalm 103. We will read the entire Psalm, and the text will be verse 9 of Psalm 103. This is the word of the Lord. Bless the Lord. And judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his, that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Verse 9 is the verse we will consider now. He will not always chide, neither will he keep is anger forever. As we look forward to coming to the Lord's table, we come again to Psalm 103, that joyful psalm inspired by the Spirit that gives such a beautiful expression to the joy of the Christian Joy that flows from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We come first to the word of God to hear the word. So that that word by the power of the spirit may excite this joy and this thanksgiving in our hearts. And so that with an understanding faith we might perceive the spiritual realities. Pictured in the broken bread and the poured out wine. In which we see. The most astounding mercy of God. We come to the hearing of the word. That the hearing of that word may summon our souls to praise Jehovah for his mercy. And then with that joy and thanksgiving in our hearts. We come to the table to have our faith strengthened thereby. And our joy increased thereby. That we may go forth this day and in the week ahead. Rejoicing in our God. As we've been going through Psalm 103, we've been looking at so many facets of Jehovah's covenant mercy for his people. A beautiful diamond that mercy is, with so many facets that gleam as the light of scripture is shined upon them. And so verse 9 takes that diamond and sets it before our eyes again and turns it this way so that now we look at another facet of that blessed mercy of God for us, he will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. You let those words sink in and you think about what that means. What joy we have. Our God doesn't keep his anger. Let's think about what that means this morning. Our theme is praising Jehovah who keepeth not his anger. First, let's look at his anger. Secondly, that it's not forever. And then finally answer the question, how can it be? God has anger. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. And we mustn't miss the implied statement at the end of the verse. His anger. God has anger. And the text requires us to reckon with that fact that God has anger. And that's a frightening thought. It should be to sinful men. People would much rather have a God who is nice, who is safe, who is harmless, who wouldn't hurt a fly, who is indulgent toward people. He might get disappointed with you when you don't do what he says, but he's so nice and so harmless, he's never going to do anything about it. He's certainly not going to get angry, and he won't act on that anger. That's the kind of God people want, and that's the kind of God that, if we're honest with ourselves, our hearts would like to have. Because such a God need not be feared. Such a God need not be obeyed. He's not going to do anything to you. Such a God you can serve on your own terms. He's safe in the wrong sense in that to a certain degree he can be controlled. You can do as you please. You can render unto him the level of obedience that suits you without having to worry about any consequences. That's the kind of God people would like to have and that's the kind of God that. Man fashions after the imaginations of his heart, and that's the kind of God our sinful flesh would like to have. Not a God who has anger. Anger which is holy wrath against sin. So it's increasingly popular in our day and we have to be aware of it and resist this spirit of our age in Christian circles. It's increasingly popular to downplay God's anger, to be embarrassed about this part of the Bible's revelation concerning the one true God. There's a long history of that downplaying of God's anger going all the way back to the ancient church when heretics looked at the Bible and said, well, the Old Testament can't be in the Bible because it reveals an angry God. And that's so different from the New Testament God Who is love? That thinking more and more prevails today. People like to play God's love off against God's anger. As if a loving God can never be angry. When did love mean you're never angry? Love that is never angry over evil and injustice is not real love. God is love. But that does not cancel out that God has anger. Oh no. In fact, those two are in perfect harmony with each other. But regardless of what the spirit of the age says, we don't look to the spirit of the age or to human wisdom for our understanding of God. We turn to God's own self-revelation of himself. The Bible. And the Bible won't let us downplay God's anger. It's true. The Old Testament especially emphasizes that God is a holy God who has anger. But the New Testament does too. After all we read in Romans 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's what general revelation testifies to unbelieving man. It's what the whole creation says to man The wrath of God shall come upon all those who do not believe and confess him and serve him and worship him as he is due. Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. The prophet Nahum, Nahum 1 verse 6 speaks of this anger of God Who can stand before his indignation and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. This is the God of scriptures. This is how God is pleased to reveal himself in his own word. And that stresses for us the importance of this truth. We must reckon with the fact that God has anger. It's not to be downplayed. This is the same God as reveals himself in Psalm 103. God has anger. What do we do with that? Not deny it, but understand it. Understand the nature and the character of the divine anger of the one true God. And so to understand God's anger, we need to see first of all what it's not. One of the reasons people don't like God's anger is, well, for one, they want that nice God they can manipulate. But others misunderstand God's anger by interpreting it through the lens of human anger, which is so often unrighteous and petty. But that's not God. Let's see in the first place that God is not an angry God in himself. And What I mean by that is anger is not an Attribute of the divine being the way love, grace, mercy, holiness, etc. are. God's attributes are the infinite perfections of his divine being. God is his attributes. God is love. God is holiness. But the Bible doesn't say God is anger. God's anger, rather, is his attributes showing themselves In the presence of something contrary to him. Something that exalts itself against him. That is evil, sin, all that is out of harmony with his own perfect will. Anger is not an attribute of God. Anger is the reaction of God's holiness When it comes into contact with evil, that which is opposed to who he is as the supreme good and the overflowing fountain of all good. And so God must never be pictured as a God who is like a temperamental man. He easily flares up in anger because he harbors this wrath within himself. It's ingrained into his very nature. No, God is has anger, but that anger is a manifestation of his holiness and goodness. It's never an uncontrolled flare of temper. After all, God is almighty. That's one of his attributes. And part of God's almighty power, his omnipotence, is that he has absolute and perfect self-control. That's where real power is displayed. There are many mighty men in the world who have great power, But they're actually weak and they're fools because they can't control themselves. The greatest power is self-control. And Almighty God has perfect self-control. Our God never has a flare of temper that's out of control. His anger is controlled. It's purposeful. It's directed by His holiness and goodness. And therefore it is never unrighteous. Our anger is often unrighteous. Our anger flares up because of something petty. Or because somebody did something that thwarted my will. Or got in my way. And often that anger is unrighteous. Because my way and my will is not the standard of right and wrong. But God's is. God's will is always in perfect harmony with his being. What God wills. What God commands is always a perfect expression of his goodness and his holiness. God's will is the standard for right and wrong. And so whenever God's will is transgressed. Whenever there is something contrary to God's will, he must be angry. Justice demands it. If God were not angry at the transgression of his own will, he would not be a good God. He would not be holy. He would be unrighteous. And you see, that's the danger of the error in our day that downplays God's anger. Really what that does is it downplays God's holiness. It makes God not a good God a good god a holy god can't abide evil justice must be done and that's the god of the scriptures he has holy righteous anger anger that burns against evil and the evil doer and there we want to Refute another mistake of our day. It's it's often popular for people to say that God is angry with the sin. He hates the sin, but not the sinner. That doesn't make sense. Have you ever been to a murder trial? Where people have said, we hate and abhor the murder, but we have absolutely no problem with the murderer. Of course not. The murder sprang from the sinful nature and corrupt heart of the murderer. And so it is with sin. The sin can't be separated from the sinner. And there is the fearfulness of God's anger. His anger burns against evil and the evildoer. And therefore the evildoer, the sinner, unless he appeases God's wrath, unless justice is satisfied, that wrath must consume him, and justice demands it. God has anger, and that anger must either consume the evildoer, or that anger must be appeased through the satisfaction of justice. One of those two. And every sinner stands before the holy God and must be consumed. Or appease. There's the fearful situation. Every sinner. By himself. Stands in. The evildoer will fall into the hands. Of a holy and righteous God. Who is angry. And that anger will consume. Unless he can appease. And can man appease the holy one? What can man, the sinner, with his infinite debt, render to the Holy One to satisfy the offended justice of the Holy One? And we know the answer, absolutely nothing. Man cannot appease. The sinner cannot appease. And so that leaves only the option of consuming. But man's sin is an infinite offense. That consuming will not come to an end. The penalty for sin is death. Eternal death. And what is eternal death? It is abiding under the unceasing holy wrath of God that executes its penalty upon the evildoer. That's justice. That's the fearful state. The sinner. As he stands by himself naked before the eyes of the God who is a consuming fire with whom he will have to do. That's you and me by ourselves. But now, the text presents to us a most amazing gospel reality that this anger, this holy, righteous anger of God, is not forever understand right from the get-go that the text is talking to God's covenant people, his believing people. This is not a word of God to the whole human race, head for head. This whole psalm, as we've observed before, is a psalm written by David. It arises out of the Spirit's work in his heart. He speaks as a believing covenant child of God. This is a word of the gospel for believers. The wrath of God abides upon unbelieving man. And as long as man is unbelieving, that wrath will abide upon him. And the man who does not believe and continues in his sin. And this is a warning. Should there be any here who do not believe. God's wrath will abide upon you. And in that way of unbelief, you shall perish. Everlastingly under the wrath of God. But now for the believer. For the child of God, this is the gospel message of the text. God's anger is not forever. Not forever. Let's look at the text now and we're going to work through it by starting at the back and working to the beginning. Neither will he keep his anger forever. What does that mean? Well, to keep anger means to hold on to, not letting it go. It means to guard it. It means to nurture it. It means to constantly express that anger and that disfavor upon the just object of that anger. It means never letting it cool but continually stoking its flame so that it keeps on burning. That's what it is to keep anger. And that's what God must do towards the unbeliever. He must keep his anger. Justice demands it. But the gospel message to God's people in this text is that he will not keep his anger. That anger will not perpetually burn against you. God will not be your adversary who stands before you in his wrath and executes condemnation upon you. He will not give you that cup which is full of the red wine of his wrath, which the psalm says the wicked will drain. If God were to keep his anger, you and I would be utterly consumed. We would be consumed and perish everlastingly. That's hell. That's hell. Hell is the evildoer being pushed away from God. Exiled from His presence. Forever banished from Him. And there, outside of God's presence and away from His favor, the sinner experiences the continuous and eternal outpouring of the just fury of the Holy One. The text says, God's people, believer, God will not keep his anger forever. You will not experience that. But God has turned his anger away from you. It is not forever. Not only is God slow to anger, as verse 8 says, but He is quick to turn His anger away from His people. He quenches it, as it were, in His mercy. And this is a beautiful aspect of salvation that the Scriptures bring out in many places. So for example, Psalm 30 verse 5, His anger endureth but a moment. It's short-lived, you might say. God says through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 57 verse 16, I will not contend forever, neither will I always be wroth. Micah 7 verse 18, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever. Because he delighteth in mercy. This is the wonder. The holy wrath of Jehovah God doesn't endure forever. He retains it not towards his people. This doesn't deny that God is at times angry with his children. He is. He's angered by their sin. His, their sin displeases displeases him. But what the text teaches us is that God's anger towards his children is of a different sort. It is not the punishing wrath that he pours out upon the unbelieving ungodly and upon the reprobate, but it is the chastening anger of a father. Anger that has behind it love and which aims at correction and restoration. There is no forever anger of God for his people. You think about the whole covenant story revealed in the scriptures from beginning to end. And how often do we not see that? Think of the very first transgression of our first parents, Adam and Eve. How God's anger was but for a moment. How he came and he sought his wayward son and daughter in mercy. And he gave them that gospel promise of the coming seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And who would redeem his people. And then he signified and sealed it to them with the giving of those animal skins. Kind of Old Testament sacrament if you will that pictured for them the shedding of the blood of the promised seed that would cover their sins, that would appease the wrath of God. His anger was but for a moment, but he turned it away from his children. There. Is a demonstration of the truth of the text. And you see that throughout covenant history. How patient, how slow to anger God was with his stiff-necked people in the wilderness. And though he chastened them as a father and sometimes severely, his anger didn't burn against them forever. He forgave them. Forgave them through that intercession of Moses the mediator. Who pictured our savior who liveth ever to make intercession for us. Or even the Babylonian captivity. That chastening rod that God used to strike his people after centuries of apostasy. And yet, it only lasted 70 years. You might say 70 years is a long time. Yes, it is. But compared to centuries of apostasy, God did not retain his anger. He did not keep it forever. It was but for a moment. But for a moment. And that gets us now to the first half of the text. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. And these two parallel parts of the text communicate the same message, but they each have their own nuance. So let's now look at that word chide. Chiding is a way of manifesting anger. And because God does not keep his anger towards his own people, that means he will not always chide them. That word chide really has two ideas packed into it. And they're both beautiful and worthwhile. In the first place, the word chide has a formal meaning. It's actually a legal term. In the Hebrew, it's the word chide. Meaning to file a lawsuit against someone. To prosecute in court of law. And the second meaning is the one that's more familiar and maybe comes to our mind when we think about the English term to chide. A father chides his children. To chide is to chasten with your words. And both of those ideas are packed into this word chide. So let's look at both of them a moment. The first being to file a lawsuit The text says God will not always press charges. He will not forever press charges against you. Prosecute you according to the maximum extent of the law. And that's amazing because His holiness demands that. His holiness demands that the sinner suffer the penalty that sin deserves according to the sentence of His law. The wages of sin is death. And all that belongs to that horrible word, death. The strict justice and holiness of God demands that the sinner be prosecuted to the maximum extent of the law. That charges be pressed. And oh, what a case God would have against you and against me. What a case. He's the all-seeing judge. His eyes are in every place beholding the evil and the good. Every violation of His divine law which we cannot count. Many of which we might not even be aware of in our own lives. He has seen. And each one of them bears the death penalty according to His law. And yet the text declares this wonder. He will not always chide. He will not always press charges. He will not prosecute forever. That is... He will not sentence you to the condemnation that you and I do deserve. He will not always convict. He does. In his believing people in you and me, that's one of the great works of the Spirit as He sanctifies us. He convicts us of sin. He convicts us in our conscience, in our conscience. but that's not all he does. Then the gospel comes. And the Spirit applies that word of the gospel. Which says what? This is the judge's verdict. Acquitted. At the judgment seat of God. Forgiven. He will not always chide. He will not always press charges. He will not prosecute you. To that end sentence. You and I deserve. That's the first meaning of chide, but now the more familiar one, to chide. To chide is fatherly chastening with words. Fathers, instruction here. This is how God deals with us. This is how we must deal with our children. When they disobey, when they do wrong, not lash out in anger, in fury, but discipline and love. Chide. Chide. Fathers get angry with their children when the children do wrong. But that anger is of a different sort than the uncontrolled fury of a wicked man. It must be controlled, it must be motivated by love, with a desire to correct and restore. That's God's anger towards his people. He chides us, the text says. He doesn't pour out the vials of his punishing fury on us. Sometimes we do speak about God punishing our sins, and there we use that word loosely. The better word is God chastens his people, he disciplines them for his sin, and that highlights that his wrath is of a completely different nature. Really, his wrath no longer abides on his people because Christ took it. We'll see you in a moment. But rather, he has fatherly displeasure in the sins of his people. And he chastens them in that displeasure to restore them and correct them. He Chastens. He chides. He does this in many ways. He rebukes us in his word. He convicts us by his spirit. He vexes our consciences when we walk and live in sin. He causes us to be afflicted by a guilty conscience. He frowns upon us and he shows that frown in the declaration of his word. Which tells us that he does not have pleasure in sin. He sends us his frowning, his frowning providences with which he chastens us. The natural consequences of sin causing us to reap what we sow. And yet in all of this, it's not a manifestation of punishing wrath, but a manifestation of his fatherly goodness chiding, chastening to turn us. He chides his people. But that chiding will not last forever. His chastening will not last forever. Why? Because that chiding, that chastening has the purpose of correcting and restoring And God's chiding is effectual. Just like all of his work in us is effectual, it brings to pass the end that he desires for it. His chiding works its own end. And so his chiding is but for a moment. He will not always chide. What a comfort that is! It's a comfort for us when we struggle with sin. And when we experience that chiding of God, it's for our good. And sometimes that chiding is heavy and may feel fierce. And whatever fierceness is in God's chiding, it shows you the seriousness of His love. He will not forsake His people to their sin. And sometimes He will slay us that He may restore us to life. But in that chiding there is his love. And that chiding, as fierce as it can be at times, is but for a moment. It will achieve its purpose. It will. So that's the gospel. He will not keep his anger forever. How can it be? How can it be? We've looked at his anger We've looked at the wonderful reality that he will not keep it forever against his people. How do you reconcile those two things? Because after all, we are sinners. Of ourselves, we are no different from the reprobate wicked, the world of unbelief. We just as much deserve to be prosecuted to the maximal extent of God's law. We deserve the wages of sin, which is death. And yet... The text declares God will not keep his anger forever. He will not always chide. He will not press charges to their ultimate end. How do we reconcile those two facts of the text? How can it be? Here we have to look at this verse in the context of the whole psalm. And remember who this psalm is blessing. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. This is the God, Jehovah. The God of covenant mercy, who has given his Son, Jesus Christ, Jehovah's salvation. And that's the answer to the question. That's the reconciliation of those two seemingly contrary facts. His anger, which must be poured out upon the wicked. He will not keep his anger against us. How can it be Jesus Christ? The mediator. The one and only mediator between God and man. We saw that God's anger, his holy anger must consume. Or it must be appeased through the satisfaction of justice. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. Into that dreadful and fearful situation that every sinner finds himself by nature. Jesus Christ steps now into the light. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, in our flesh. Very man, yet truly God. Such that he is able to take responsibility for our sins as our representative and head. Such that he has God's own almighty power. Whereby he is able to bear that burden of the fury of God's holy wrath against our sins. God and man. Able. He alone is able. To appease that wrath. To appease by making Atonement. Atonement which is payment. Payment that meets every single demand, jot and tittle of that holy law of God. He appeases by atoning. And he atones by taking upon himself that consuming wrath. And bearing it. And sustaining it. So as to deliver us. From it, and to merit for us the everlasting favor and fellowship of the Holy God. That's the cross. That's the cross now pictured in the sacrament we will soon partake of. The cross, there, hell came to Christ, and hell spent itself upon Christ, and hell, like a wave of the sea, Dashed itself against him who is the rock. And hell was spent. And Christ victorious for us. Jesus Christ the righteous. The propitiation for our sins. Behold him. He is the reconciliation. God's anger. God will not keep his anger. Why? Christ. His atonement. That's why. Even though there is such a case against you and me. That's why he will not press charges. God will not prosecute us to the maximal extent of his law. Because that case was filed against Jesus Christ. Who willingly took it as our representative. And God prosecuted him according to the maximal extent of the law. That was the cross. And now the holiness of God which before demanded your prosecution, now demands your acquittal for God to prosecute any of us who are covered by the blood of Christ. It would be a slight to that perfect work of Christ. There's no more case. God will not keep his anger. There's no more punishing fury for the child of God. Why? Because Christ bore it all. Christ bore it all and took it Away. He said. It is finished. There is a world of meaning in that expression. It is finished. But part of that meaning is. God's wrath is finished. He will not keep his anger forever. He cannot keep his anger forever. Against those who are covered by the blood of Christ. It is finished. There is no more wrath. Only the father's chiding. Chiding, fatherly chastening. The cross explains that too. In fact, that fatherly chastening of God is a benefit of the cross for us. Having now been reconciled to God by the blood of His Son, we are now children and joint heirs with Christ. And God deals with us now, not as He deals with the wicked world and the reprobate wicked, but He deals with us as sons, as daughters. And when we transgress His will, The response of his holiness is not punishing wrath. But the response of his holiness is fatherly chastening. He chides. Powerfully corrects and restores in his love. How can it be Christ in his cross? Come now, beloved, to this table. To the table of the Holy One. Come to the table of the God who is the consuming fire and come without fear because he shall receive you for Christ's sake. You do not come to the table of the angry God. You come as a reconciled son, as a reconciled daughter to the table of your loving father. To the table of Christ your elder brother who gave himself for you and the broken bread and the poured out wine. Is a visible token and assurance. He will not always chide. Neither will he keep his anger forever. Come. Taste. And see. Those words. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father. We ask that thou wilt bless this word to our hearts. And that in the assurance of thy love and mercy that thou dost not keep thy anger, but hast turned it away for the sake of Christ, grant that we may come to thy table now with steadfast faith and confidence, and to partake of these good gifts for the upbuilding of our faith. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We now turn to the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper. The Consistory has approved the following brothers and sisters to partake of the Supper with us. Brian and, T- and Tricia Cotman from Loveland, Tom and Mary Verstrat from Trinity, and Brian, Karen, and Claire Kuyper from Trinity. We welcome these brothers and sisters to the table with us. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, attend to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Holy Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23-29. through 29. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That we may now celebrate the supper of our Lord to our comfort, it is above all things necessary, first, rightly to examine ourselves. Secondly, to direct it to that end for which Christ hath ordained and instituted the same, namely to his remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of these three parts. First, that every one consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them, to the end that he may abhor and humble himself before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that, rather than it should go unpunished, he hath punished the same in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Secondly, that every one examine his own heart, whether he doth believe this faithful promise of God, that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him as his own, yea, so perfectly as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Thirdly, let one examine his own conscience, whether he purposeth henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life, and to walk uprightly before him, as also whether he hath laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, hatred, and envy, and doth firmly resolve henceforward to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. All those, then, who are thus disposed, God will certainly receive in mercy, and count them worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not feel this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. Therefore, we also, according to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, admonish all those who are defiled with the following sins to keep themselves from the table of the Lord and declare to them that they have no part in the kingdom of Christ, such as all idolaters, all those who invoke deceased saints, angels, or other creatures, all those who worship images, All enchanters, diviners, charmers, and those who confide in such enchantments. All despisers of God and of his word and of the holy sacraments. All blasphemers. All those who are given to raise discord, sects, and mutiny in church or state. All perjured persons. All those who are disobedient to their parents and superiors. All murderers, contentious persons, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors. All adulterers, whoremongers, drunkards, thieves, usurers, robbers, gamesters, covetous, and all who lead offensive lives. All these, while they continue in such sins, shall abstain from this meat, which Christ hath ordained only for the faithful, lest their judgment and condemnation be made the heavier. But this is not designed, dearly beloved brethren and sisters in the Lord, to deject the contrite hearts of the faithful, as if none might come to the supper of the Lord but those who are without sin. For we do not come to this supper to testify thereby that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves, but on the contrary, considering that we seek our life out of ourselves in Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that we lie in the midst of death. Therefore, notwithstanding, we feel many infirmities and miseries in ourselves, as namely, that we have not perfect faith, and that we do not give ourselves to serve God with that zeal as we are bound but have daily to strive with the weakness of our faith and the evil lusts of our flesh. Yet, since we are, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, sorry for these weaknesses and earnestly desirous to fight against our unbelief and to live according to all the commandments of God, therefore we rest assured that no sin or infirmity which still remaineth against our will in us can hinder us from being received of God in mercy and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly meat and drink. Let us now also consider to what end the Lord hath instituted his supper, namely that we do it in remembrance of him. Now after this manner are we to remember him by it. First, that we are confidently persuaded in our hearts that our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the promises to our forefathers in the Old Testament, was sent of the Father into the world, that he assumed our flesh and blood, that he bore for us the wrath of God, under which we should have perished everlastingly, from the beginning of his incarnation to the end of his life upon earth, and that he hath fulfilled for us all obedience to the divine law and righteousness, especially when the weight of our sins and the wrath of God pressed out of him the bloody sweat in the garden, where he was bound, that we might be freed from our sins. That he afterwards suffered innumerable reproaches, that we might never be confounded. That he was innocently condemned to death, that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God, Yea, that he suffered his blessed body to be nailed to the cross, that he might fix thereon the handwriting of our sins, and hath also taken upon himself the curse due to us, that he might fill us with his blessings, and hath humbled himself unto the deepest reproach and pains of hell, both in body and soul on the tree of the cross, when he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That we might be accepted of God and never be forsaken of Him. And finally, confirmed with His death and shedding of His blood the new and eternal testament, that covenant of grace and reconciliation, when He said, It is finished. Secondly, that we might firmly believe that we belong to this covenant of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ, in His Last Supper, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he break it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. In like manner also after supper he took the cup, gave thanks and said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new testament in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. That is, as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you shall thereby, as by a sure remembrance and pledge, be admonished and assured of this my hearty love and faithfulness towards you, that whereas you should otherwise have suffered eternal death, I have given my body to the death of the cross and shed my blood for you, and as certainly feed and nourish your hungry and thirsty souls with my crucified body and shed blood to everlasting life. As this bread is broken before your eyes and this cup is given to you, and you eat and drink the same with your mouth in remembrance of me. From this institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see that he directs our faith and trust to his perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross. As to the only ground and foundation of our salvation Wherein he is become to our hungry and thirsty souls the true meat and drink of life eternal. For by his death he hath taken away the cause of our eternal death and misery, namely sin, and obtained for us the quickening spirit that we by the same who dwelleth in Christ as in the head and in us as his members might have true communion with him and be made partakers of all his blessings of life eternal, righteousness and glory. Besides, that we, by this same Spirit, may also be united as members of one body, in true brotherly love, as the Holy Apostle saith, For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. For as out of many grains one meal is ground and one bread baked, and out of many berries being pressed together one wine floweth and mixeth itself together, so shall we all who by a true faith are engrafted into Christ, be all together one body, through brotherly love for Christ's sake, our beloved Savior, who have so exceedingly loved us, and not only show this in word, but also in very deed toward one another. Here to assist us, the Almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit. Amen. That we may obtain all this, let us humble ourselves before God and with true faith implore his grace in prayer. O most merciful God and Father, we beseech thee that thou wilt be pleased in this supper, in which we celebrate the glorious remembrance of the bitter death of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that we may daily, more and more, With true confidence, give ourselves up unto thy Son, Jesus Christ, that our afflicted and contrite hearts, through the power of the Holy Spirit, may be fed and comforted with his true body and blood yea, with him, true God and man, that only heavenly bread, and that we may no longer live in our sins, but he in us and we in him. And thus truly be made partakers of the new and everlasting covenant of grace. That we may not doubt but that thou wilt forever be our gracious father. Nevermore imputing our sins unto us. And providing us with all things necessary. As well for the body as the soul. As thy beloved children and heirs. Grant also this grace. That we may take up our cross cheerfully deny ourselves, confess our Savior, and in all tribulations with uplifted heads, expect our Lord Jesus Christ from heaven, where he will make our mortal bodies like unto his most glorious body and take us unto him in eternity. Strengthen us by this Holy Supper in the Catholic and undoubted Christian faith, whereof we make confession with our mouths and hearts, saying, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. While the Lord's table is being prepared, we sing from Psalter Psalter 431. 431. We will sing stanzas 1, 2, 4, and 6. 1, 2, 4, and 6. 431. That we may now be fed with the true heavenly bread, Christ Jesus. Let us not cleave with our hearts unto the external bread and wine, but lift them up on high in heaven, where Christ Jesus is our advocate at the right hand of his heavenly Father, whither all the articles of our faith lead us, not doubting, but we shall as certainly be fed and refreshed in our souls Through the working of the Holy Spirit with his body and blood as we receive the holy bread and wine in remembrance of him. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob, and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. The bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. Drink ye all of it. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Beloved in the Lord, since the Lord hath now fed our souls at his table, let us therefore jointly praise his holy name with thanksgiving, and everyone say in his heart thus Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction. Who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Who hath not spared his own son, but delivered him up for us all, and hath given us all things with him. Therefore God commendeth therewith his love toward us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified in his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Therefore shall my mouth and heart show forth the praise of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let us now join our hearts in a prayer of thanksgiving. <clears throat> o almighty and merciful God and Father, we render thee, Most humble and hearty thanks that thou hast, of thy infinite mercy, given us thine only begotten Son for a mediator and a sacrifice for our sins, and to be our meat and drink unto life eternal, and that thou givest us lively faith, whereby we are made partakers of such great benefits. Thou hast also been pleased... That thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, should institute and ordain his Holy Supper for the confirmation of the same. Grant, we beseech thee, O faithful God and Father, that through the operation of thy Holy Spirit, the commemoration of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ may tend to the daily increase of our faith and saving fellowship with him. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, in whose name we conclude our prayers, saying, Our Father,